0: Welcome to Understanding Christianity. I'm Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct professor of Old and New Testament theology, church history, and ethics at Colorado Christian University. Over the past few podcasts, we've been looking at the doctrines of grace, um, otherwise known as Reformed theology or Calvinism. And these have been controversial, and um, I've kind of given my view. Obviously, I land on the Calvinistic side. And so this podcast is going to deal with a little bit more detail as far as an ongoing debate or an ongoing controversy within... My circle, the Southern Baptist Convention. Now, you may be listening to this podcast and you have no idea what's going on within the Southern Baptist Convention on this issue. Um, And so you, you may not really care. But what I'd like to do is I really think it's an important issue to talk about because... As Bible-believing Christians, uh, there are some strong convictions that we can have on certain issues, but uh, I want to do a couple of things in this podcast. We're, we're, it's going to be kind of Southern baptist and I apologize for that if you're not Southern Baptist, and, and I'm going to delve a little bit into some historical issues related to, to figures in church history because I think it's important to, to look at how the history of all of these things have led up to where we are today. And so in the Southern Baptist Convention right now, uh, pretty much maybe over the last 10, 15 years, there's been a resurgence in Calvinism, a resurgence in the doctrines of grace. And I'm kind of a product of that. Back in 2000-ish, 2001, I went on a journey from being what would be considered a traditional Southern Baptist theology um, to embrace more of a Calvinistic theology. And so the first thing I'd like to say about this issue is that the issue of Calvinism or Arminianism or traditional Southern Baptist, uh, this is a secondary issue that's more of a doctrinal or a doctrinal issue, not an issue of dogma. Now, what do I mean by the difference between dogma and doctrine? Well, dogma are those absolute essential beliefs that mark Christianity, For example, if you get rid of a dogma, you've moved into either a cult or another world religion. So let me give you some examples of what would be considered dogma. We would say the doctrine of the Trinity. We'd say the virgin birth, the sinless nature of Christ, the resurrection bodily, uh, salvation by grace alone through faith alone, the authority and inspiration of the Bible, uh, Jesus' death on the cross, the reality of heaven and hell. Those types of things that are absolute essentials that make Christianity, Christianity. Now, secondary issues of doctrine are things that are very, very important that we can have strong convictions on. And oftentimes uh, the different denominations that you see or different movements may be marked by different doctrinal distinctives. These are secondary. These are not dogmas. And so I would not say to a traditional Southern Baptist or to an Arminian or to somebody that has a different doctrine than I am that they're not a Christian. Uh, that that's that's wrong. Th- these, these are issues of doctrine. And so, uh, you know, whether or not um, you baptize by immersion or you sprinkle like covenant Presbyterians, or whether you speak in tongues or believe that the sign gifts are still in operation today, or whether you are what's called a cessationist, where you believe those cease during the times of the apostles, uh, whether you believe in Eternal security, or that you can lose your salvation, uh, things like that, and then the whole issue of um, the depravity of man, total inability, total depravity, irresistible grace, resistible grace. Um, did is it unconditional election? Is it conditional? Is it corporate election? All of these issues are secondary. And so I want to frame this discussion by saying that what we're talking about in this intramural debate between uh, Southern Baptists who are more traditional, and I'll define that in just a few moments, and those of us who are more Calvinistic, we're, we're arguing or we're discussing things that are of secondary nature. So that's number one. Number two, I want to just affirm that we as Southern Baptists have a whole lot more in common than we have differences. I am thankful that I am a Southern Baptist, and I am thankful for my traditional Southern Baptist friends. My father, as a matter of fact, is, is a poster child for a, a traditional Southern Baptist. He is a retired director of missions. He was a seminary uh, professor at Golden Gate. He was a pastor. He was a church planner. He's been a director of missions in two different associations. Um, he was educated at Midwestern. Theological Seminary I mean he he's Southern Baptist to the core, and he um, signed the traditional statement, and I'll talk about that in a few moments and so um, I love my father, he's probably the most godly man that I know, and, and and I have many friends within the state convention and across our convention and our association who identify more as traditional Southern Baptists, and I'm thankful for them I'm thankful that we can stand together on the inerrancy of scripture. I'm thankful that we can stand together on god's definition of marriage between one man and one woman. I'm thankful we can stand together on the need to do evangelism and the, the reality of hell and the exclusivity of Christ as the only way of salvation and that we can cooperate together to do missions through the cooperative program to support North American missions and the International Mission Board and that we can join together at the local associational level and the state convention level and we can, we can lock arms and do things together. And I'm so thankful. And so I have, I have no vendetta. I have nothing against the traditional Southern Baptist brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, And so this is not an issue where we're fighting uh, big-time issues here that are going to divide us. But at the same token, there are very sharp differences in the way we view salvation or the the theological term soteriology. Now, let me also say this as a prefatory statement of what what I'm saying here. I am not one of those Calvinists who would say Calvinism is the gospel. Now, Charles Spurgeon got into some trouble during his day, and he's often quoted by Calvinists, and he's got the famous statement, Calvinism is the gospel. As a Calvinist, I reject that statement. Nowhere in the Bible do you find the statement, Calvinism is the gospel. Paul defines the gospel for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The gospel is the historical event of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. That is the gospel. And the response to that gospel is that all people everywhere are to repent of their sins and believe in Jesus Christ. That's the good news of the gospel. And so whether you're an Arminian, whether you're a traditional Southern Baptist, whether you're a Calvinistic Southern Baptist, hopefully we can all agree upon the definition of the gospel. Now, there's some undergirding and underlying doctrines that fuel our practice and our understanding of how the gospel fleshes itself out especially when it comes to evangelism when it comes to certain biblical practices um, certain um, historical practices among southern baptists in particular Uh, there's the underlying doctrines that really um, basically distinguish between uh, how we view the gospel and so, you know, I've been paying a lot of attention to this debate um, as, a, as a Calvinistic Southern Baptist. And um, I'm very interested in hearing different... Um perspectives on this. I listen to different podcasts from all different sides. I go to different blogs from all different sides. And one thing I have to say is sometimes the blogs can be a little bit caustic. The blogs can be a little bit um, inflammatory and sometimes not that helpful. Um, And so what I want to do in this podcast is I want to hopefully model um, being gentle and kind and gentlemanly um, with those with whom I strongly disagree on these issues. Now, there's one person in particular that I really enjoy listening to, and his name is Layton Flowers. And Leighton Flowers is a um, he's a youth evangelism director for the state of Texas for the Texas Baptists. He's also an adjunct professor, I think, at Dallas Baptist University, and he has a podcast called Soteriology One Hundred and One. And he's got a very interesting story, Um, like me, back in the late 90s, early 2000s, I think, and he tells his testimony of how he embraced the doctrines of grace. He became a Calvinist under the influence of John Piper and R.C. Sproul and other people that that influenced me, and he was part of a Reformed Baptist church for many years. But then God in his sovereignty, and this would be an argument, God in his sovereignty or or whether he used his free will or whatever, but it just so happens that now uh, Leighton has um, basically denounced a lot of the tenets of Calvinism and he identifies more with what would we call the traditional Southern Baptist view. There is a group um, and their their name is really the John 316 or the Connect 316 um, if if you want to give them a name um, and and they're basically called the traditionalist or the traditional Southern Baptist and they um, have come out with what's called the traditional statement. Uh, about two or three years ago, Eric Hankins, a pastor in Mississippi, drafted what was called the traditional statement, and, it, and I, I appreciate the traditional statement. It was their attempt to clearly define what they believe is the traditional doctrine of Southern Baptists, and they're very alarmed at the resurgence of Calvinism within the Southern Baptist Convention, and they have every right to express what they believe um, their soteriology is, and there's a bunch of famous Southern Baptist past presidents, presidents of, of seminaries and, and, and other influential Southern Baptists who've signed their traditional statement. And so I have no problem with, with the traditional statement coming out. I have no problem with a group of Baptists saying, hey, this is what where we stand on the issue. This is how we want to clarify and articulate and, and put ourselves in a position uh, against Calvinism. I have no problem with that. It's not a big deal to me. Um, I, I do have problems with statements in the traditional statement, and I in good conscience cannot sign it because of the theology that's in there. So the fact that they came out with the statement, I have no problem with that. The content of the statement, I do have some problems with, but again, these are secondary issues. But I really enjoy listening to uh, Leighton Flowers on Soteriology 101. Um, He had a recent debate with Dr. James White of Alpha and Omega Ministries. Um, Dr. White and I go back a long time. He was my professor of apologetics at Golden Gate when I was at the Rocky Mountain campus here in Denver. And um, his book, The Potter's Freedom, was very influential in in helping me to come to understand the doctrines of grace. And I've been listening to to James White for years and following him on Alpha and Omega Ministries. And and they had a, a debate on Romans 9 and There's been a lot of conversation about that debate, and I've heard James White's take on it, I've heard Leighton Flowers take on it, I've heard other people's take on it, and I'm not going to comment on it because I think a lot of other people have done that. What I want to do is I want to just say I really appreciate the tenor, the tone, the attitude, the graciousness of Leighton Flowers. Um, He's not an incendiary man. Um, He sometimes gets passionate when he speaks, and I appreciate that. I mean, he's a pastor, and so sometimes we get to to preach and get passionate about what we're talking about, and I don't fault him for that at all, but he has a very gentlemanly tone. He's very gracious. He really tries hard to try to understand the other side. Um, I just, I disagree with a lot of what he says, and I come away from, you know, some of his podcasts, you know, maybe talking out loud saying, I don't, I don't believe that or i don't understand that or you or you misrepresented that but his tone is very gracious and so i really appreciate his his podcast and if you're not a um you, you know you're you're not a, you're a calvinist like me i think it's important to listen to other people that have different perspectives and i would really recommend going to his blog um you know, he has some, some of his arguments are convincing, some of his arguments, I think, are not. Um, I'll leave that up to you as the listener or the reader to go listen to that. But what I want to do is I want to interact with a statement or a couple of statements that he had on his latest podcast. And uh, towards the end of his podcast, Soteriology 101, um, he basically talked about the real fundamental difference between the traditional Southern Baptists. And the Calvinistic Southern Baptist. And I agree with him on what this difference is. And so I'm gonna play a portion of this, and I may stop and make some comments. And often on my podcast, I don't interact with other people. I usually just kind of do some teaching. But I thought what I want to do is I wanna model, number one, I wanna I wanna kinda promote Leighton Flowers, even though I disagree with a lot of what he says, I really appreciate his tone. I appreciate his attitude. I appreciate what he the way he stands for. He's a gracious Christian man, and I I think he's a good model of how you can interact with people you disagree with. And so I'm going to try to be as gentlemanly as he is and and, and interact with people that I disagree with. But I think it's important for us to listen to this, and I think he pinpoints the real difference. And I'm going to also take on the challenge that he gives at the end. So let's listen to this, and then... um, I'll kind of break it down, and then I'll discuss it. And kind of where we're going to go is I'm going to address what he says by going back to the traditional statement. I'm going to trace back to some Baptist history and where this has come from. And then I'm going to go way back into church history to the the early church, the the, the forefathers, the ancient church. And then finally, we're going to end up with what the Bible says on this issue. So let's listen to Leighton Flowers.
1: Okay, let's do this. Um, Article 2 is kind of where the controversy really rested um, on the traditionalist statement. Um, It's under the sinfulness of man. Let, Let me just read what it says first. It says, We affirm that because of the fall of Adam, every person inherits a nature and an environment inclined towards sin, and that every person who is capable of moral action will sin. Each person's sin alone brings the wrath of a holy God, broken fellowship with him, ever worsening sinfulness and destructiveness death and condemnation to an eternity in hell and so that that describes what i've talked about as a person not being born in all those horrible uh, conditions but that's what they're inevitably leading to if not for the intervention of god the gospel revelation all that god's making himself known so if, if left to ourselves without any revelation without any gospel without the spirit without anything then then this is, this is the destiny that we all would go, eternity in hell.
0: Now, he refers there to what's called the traditional statement. And, and he read that the article 2, the sinfulness of man, the affirmation, all of these have affirmation and denials. And it's similar in wording to the Baptist faith and message. And, and the, but there's a major problem that I have with the wording there. He says, we affirm that because of the fall of Adam, every person inherits a nature and an environment inclined toward sin. That's a softening of what the 1925 Baptist faith and message has. And it moved towards a softer view on total depravity in the 1963, and we're going to talk about that. But I do not like the wording, an environment inclined toward sin, because it makes it sound like, If you have an inclination towards sin, you could either sin or not sin, depending on your inclination, depending upon your environment. Now, it does say a person inherits a nature. Yes, I agree with that. They inherit a nature. Um, And then they say every person who's capable of moral action will sin again there's a denial there of original guilt, and I 'm not going to get into that as much, um, but I just don't like the wording an inclin- an inclination towards sin it doesn't, it doesn't sound strong enough to me. I think the Bible teaches more than an inclination towards sin and environment. I think the Bible teaches that we are born with the guilt of Adam and we're under bondage to sin now let 's listen to the denials. This is the issue that that we have a problem with, that I have a problem with under the denial, and so let 's listen to Leighton Flowers. Keep continuing.
1: Um, It goes on to say, We deny that Adam's sin resulted in the incapacitation of any person's free will or rendered any person guilty before he has personally sinned. While no sinner is remotely capable of achieving salvation through his own effort, we deny that any sinner is saved apart from a free response to the Holy Spirit's drawing through the gospel, and then a the list of um, supporting passages are given there. And so the, where the, the debate really, I think, starts getting kind of hairy and a little bit um, difficult is with regard to what is meant by the gospel, um, what is meant by uh, the, the Holy Spirit's work Um for example, in the article one, it says we deny that only a select few are capable of responding to the gospel, while the rest are predestined to eternity in hell. Um, and so, just that first statement is what I think distinguishes distinguishes us from some Arminians, where it says we, we deny that people are capable of responding to the gospel.
0: Let me just stop here and clarify some things. He's talking about the um, he's talking about Arminians. But if you go back in church history and you actually look at the doctrine of total depravity, Calvinists and Arminians agree, for the most part, on the doctrine of total depravity and total inability. Uh, Both Calvinists and Arminians believe that man is totally dead He's not just spiritually sick. They both believe that he has inherited Adam's guilt and that that something has to happen to a, a sinner before he can respond. Now, the Calvinist answer is that God brings irresistible grace through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit to his elect only, The Arminian view is that God sends prevenient grace to all people, which is more like an enabling grace that helps them uh, to be able to kind of get back to the state Adam was in in the garden where he had the ability to choose uh, one, one way or the other. But in the end, it's still your free choice. And so he's making a distinction saying, really, the traditionalist view is not Calvinistic, and the traditionalist view is not Arminian. It's what they would call Baptist or Biblicist or, or traditional Baptist. And I think where Leighton is getting some of his um, influence is from Eric Hankins. Now, Eric Hankins has a Ph.D. Um, he's a pastor of First Baptist Church, Oxford, Mississippi. He is the author of the traditional statement. And, and he um, ha- has written for New Orleans. Uh, New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary is kind of really... I would say that's the theological along with Southwestern Seminary. Those two seminaries really are the hotbeds for the traditionalist movement. If you, if you could look at Southern Seminary where I'm a, a, a doctoral student at, Southern Seminary uh, and, and possibly Southeastern and, and maybe even Midwestern now with Jason Allen as the president, they lean more Calvinistically, especially Southern. And so you've kind of even in the Southern Baptist Convention got your Calvinistic seminaries and then your traditional Southern Baptist seminaries. And Golden Gate's an animal all of its own, and I'm a graduate from Golden Gate, and I think sometimes they just stay out of the fray because they're, you know, they're, they're out west out here. Uh, but, but Eric Hankins has written for the, um, the Journal of, of, of Theology that New Orleans puts out, and he has written an article called uh, Beyond Calvinism and Arminianism Toward a Baptist Soteriology, which is a very interesting title. Basically, the, the traditional Southern Baptists say, listen, don't pigeonhole us. We're not Calvinists, and we're not Arminian. We're Baptist, and there's a distinction between that. And I respect their, their, their view there. Um, like I would talk to my dad, he's like, don't ever call me an Arminian. I'm not an Arminian. I don't, I don't believe you can lose your salvation. Um, but yet there are some Arminian leanings in the traditional Southern Baptist Movement, But there's also some Calvinistic leanings because almost every traditional Southern Baptist you meet will say, absolutely, you cannot lose your salvation. They strongly believe in eternal security. But one of the things that Eric Hankins has talked about in his um, article here is the whole idea that, um, let me just give you a quote from here. He says, nothing in scripture indicates that humans have been rendered totally depraved through Adam's sin." That's a, that's, a, that's a pretty strong statement. This is what he, he, he says is basically been the typical Baptist belief. Quote, it has been typical of Baptists to believe that anyone who reaches the point of moral responsibility has the capacity to respond to the gospel. Now, there's a key word there that Eric Hankins uses, has the capacity to respond. One of the things that Leighton Flowers is is very famous, I think, for now, I don't know if he's famous for it, but one of the things he says a lot is, we are response able. We are able to respond. We have the capacity. And that's what Eric Hankins here says, is that anyone who reaches the moral, the point of moral responsibility has the capacity To respond to the gospel. Now, as a Calvinist, I would disagree with that statement. I would say nobody has the capacity to respond to the gospel because we are totally depraved and we have total, we are unable to do so unless the Holy Spirit first regenerates us. But the traditional Southern Baptist view, and I'm reading from their source documents here. The traditionalist statement, and let me go on to finish Eric Hankin's statement here. So, uh, quote, it has been typical of Baptists to believe that anyone who reaches the point of moral responsibility has the capacity to respond to the gospel. While all persons are radically sinful and totally unable to save themselves, their ability to, quote, choose otherwise defines human existence, including the ability to respond to the gospel in faith or reject it in rebellion. God initiates the process; He imbues it with His Holy Spirit's enabling. When people respond in faith, God acts according to His promises to seal that relationship for eternity, welding the will of the believer to His own, setting the believer free by His sovereign embrace. Now, that's 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 worded pretty well for what they believe. I, I disagree with it, but He words it pretty well. Now, it's interesting that He uses the term "we are radically sinful." Okay, so radically sinful. They, they, they will acknowledge total depravity, that we are radically sinful, that we can't save ourselves. And we are uh, unable to save ourselves. And so for the traditional Southern Baptists, their definition of total depravity is sin is, inher- you know, we've inherited a sin nature, we're inclined towards sin, we can't save ourselves because we're radically sinful. But that's as far as they go. They won't take it the next step that we as Calvinists and say and say, okay, as a result of that, As a result of the fall of Adam, as a result of Adam's guilt, as a result of of what the scripture says, we are also not just totally depraved, but we are totally unable. We lack the capacity to respond. And he says here that uh, the ability to choose defines human existence, including the ability to respond. So he says part of human existence, part of being made in the image of God, part of being what it means to be human is that we must have the ability to respond to the gospel or reject it. If we don't have the ability to do that, I think Eric Hanks would say that that means we're not human because he says here it defines human existence. Now, no, there's been some labels that have been thrown out there saying that the traditionalists are semi-Pelagian. I'm not going to throw that label out there because... Semi Pelagianism is, is somewhat of a heresy. Pelagianism definitely is. Um, because you talk to them and you read their blogs, and none of them are going to argue that, none of them are going to say we can save ourselves. None of them are going to say that the Holy Spirit's not active in the process. Okay, so we don't want to throw pejorative labels and call our traditional Baptist. Uh, brothers and sisters, semi-Pelagian or Belagian. They do believe in the role of the Holy Spirit. It's just what what comes first? Does regeneration precede faith or does faith come first and then the Holy Spirit blesses that faith with regeneration? And, And he argues that God initiates the process. He imbues it with the Spirit's enabling. So the Holy Spirit's active in that. God starts the process. God draws. God convicts. God woos the Holy Spirit. But then ultimately... The, the responsibility to respond to that wooing, to that respo- to that um, convicting, it still lies within the power of the sinner. Uh, so it's not Pelagianism or semi pelagianism where you can just one day wake up and say, hey, I'm going to become a Christian. I don't think any traditional Southern Baptist would say that. They say, oh, no, you need to have the preaching of the gospel. There needs to be the power of the Holy Spirit. There needs to be the convicting work of the Spirit. And one of the things that's very interesting about the arguments that I'm hearing is there seems to be, maybe not confusion, but maybe lack of precision, and we're talking past each other, on the gospel and regeneration. Um, The traditional Baptist will say the gospel in and of itself, when it's preached, the gospel itself has the power to save, that there's no and you go on like SBC Today and some of these other blogs, and, and people will say the gospel is a powerful enough to save. There doesn't need to be the Holy Spirit's sovereign regeneration. Um, the gospel is powerful. Uh, and, and I think Leighton Flowers, I'm not sure if he b- quite believes that, but let's continue to listen to see what he says, and then we can interact with that. But I think that um, a lot of his thoughts are coming initially from um, Eric Hankins. And so um, let's just continue to listen to Leighton Flowers.
1: And the reason that we we deny that people are incapable of responding to the gospel is because we believe the gospel is the inspired word of God. It is the power of God unto salvation. Faith comes by hearing, and thus when one hears the truth, truth may set you free. If you don't trade that truth in for lies, then truth is sufficient because it's of God. Jesus said the very words I speak to you are spirit and life. I think words have power. The very word of God will not not return to you void, but will accomplish the purpose for which it's sent. I think the purpose for which the gospel is sent is to appeal for the lost enemies of God to be reconciled to God. And thus I think it's sufficient for a man to respond to that appeal in and of itself. I don't think that the Holy Spirit has to do some other work in addition to the work that he does in bringing the gospel and inspiring it and in bringing it through circumstances and means and all the things that he does to bring the word.
0: Okay, to me that's a confusing statement, and I I maybe need to get some more clarification. Um, If I understand Leighton correctly, he's saying the gospel call, when the gospel's preached that is enough to allow a lost person to be able to respond and that the Holy Spirit doesn't need to do another work in addition to the work He's doing with the gospel. So my question is, then what work is the Holy Spirit doing in the gospel? He uses terms like He inspired the gospel, He convicts it. What is the specific biblical work that the Holy Spirit does when the gospel leaves a person's mouth, goes into their ears? What role is the Holy Spirit playing in that? Is the bare gospel in and of itself just preached enough, or does the Holy Spirit need to come and attend to that gospel with regeneration? I'm just a little, and maybe I'm not understanding it, uh, and maybe I've never thought of it this way, and maybe I've been so conditioned in my in my Calvinism to look at regeneration as a work of the Spirit. Um, yes, I agree that Romans one sixteen, um, the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. Yes, there is absolute power in the gospel but i think in preaching the gospel the holy spirit has to play a role in regenerating or calling or effectually calling and again you know i see a distinction between the outward call and the inward call and i'm sure most traditional southern baptists probably reject those categories they would probably say no there's no such thing as an internal call Um, god calls and it, it should be enough that when the gospel goes out A sinner hears it, he or she has the capacity to accept it or reject it. Um, That's sufficient, I think, is the word that Leighton Flowers used. And so I would disagree and say, you know, when the gospel goes forth, whether I'm preaching on a sunny morning or uh, we're in a village in India and we're sharing the gospel, or whether you're across, you know, somebody at a coffee shop and you're sharing the gospel, when it leaves your mouth... And somehow the Holy Spirit's got to take those words and do something in the heart of a lost person. I mean, we've got the example of Lydia. When Paul goes down to the river in Philippi and begins preaching, it says, the Lord opened her heart. And so my question would be, okay, is that an extra work of the Holy Spirit on top of the gospel? Or is that the gospel itself working with the Holy Spirit? Because obviously Lydia didn't open her own heart. The Lord opened her heart to receive the message. And so I'm just a little confused on that. And maybe I need to do a little bit more study and maybe I need to try to maybe read more of their writings to find out what they actually mean by that. I think the work of the gospel itself
1: is a sufficient work of revelation so that all men are held accountable and responsible to it because all men can respond to it. Um, And so...
0: Okay, I I would agree with him halfway. All men are accountable... In the sense that Romans 1 teaches that all men stand accountable before God. And especially when you hear the gospel, you're accountable to it because it's been shared to you. You, you have no excuse if the gospel's been shared to you. I would probably disagree with the second statement there that says we are, um, have the capacity or we are able to respond to it. Some may deem that with the boogeyman
1: and all the different stuff. and it's, I've gotten to the point, I just don't care. Anymore. Okay, if you want to appeal to a fifth-century, um, you know, Catholic council that supported um, baptismal regeneration of infants, then be my guest. But that's not Baptist. There's nothing Baptist about that. You're, you're not. Don't don't claim to be a Baptist if you're going to use that as your authority, because that is not a council you would you should use for your authority. If you you call yourself Baptist. And again, being a Baptist itself is not the authority. Go back to the Scriptures. And again, I, there, there's no Scripture that I've shrunk away from taking on on my blog or here. I'm I I'm a theology guy. I'm a hermeneutics guy. I, I am not basing this on a philosophical claim. I'm more than, than happy to, to take on any passage of Scripture and, and to dissect it within the context and to understand it from the original author's perspective and to see whether you truly are ever— being taught the incapacitation of the person in response to the very Word of God.
0: Okay, I do agree with him there. I think he's talking about the Council of Orange or maybe the Council of Ephesus where Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism were denounced as heresies and And yes, there are some um, ancient councils that, and during that time that we as Baptists would disagree with when it comes to baptismal regeneration of infants. And we don't want any council or outside group or ecumenical document to be our ultimate authority. The Scripture is our ultimate authority. So I do agree with him on that, that we need to go back to the Bible. We need to go back to the Scriptures. We need to be good Bereans. And I don't ever want to accuse... um, my traditional Southern Baptist brothers and sisters, that they're not doing that. I mean, we are people of the book, and I am thankful. Uh, Let me just stop and pause and and give give an inside uh, word here. Um, In a lot of other denominations that have gone liberal, they're arguing whether or not to ordain gay and lesbians as clergy or to do gay weddings and and things like that. Thankfully, that has not happened to us as Southern Baptists. We're not having that argument. You know, we are inerrantists. We believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. We believe in the authority of Scripture. We all probably share a lot of the same hermeneutics as far as how we approach the study of Scripture with the grammatical historical approach to looking at the original audience, the, the original languages, the original culture, the literary structure. And so um, thank the Lord that I can have confidence sitting under a pastor or, or listening to a pastor that's a traditional Southern Baptist and not a Calvinist that he believes the Bible, and then he holds to inerrancy, and he's done the expositional work to decipher what the original meaning was from the original languages, and he's gone back to... Um as the reformers would say, back to the original sources. And so I'm thankful for that. And so I don't ever want to accuse my traditionalist Southern Baptist brothers and sisters that somehow they're not good Bereans or they're misunderstanding the Scriptures. I think they take the Scriptures very seriously. They have a high view of Scripture just like I do. And I'm thankful that within our Southern Baptist family, we do have that, that value. Let's continue listening.
1: God, um, and as I've described before, this debate isn't just about the nature of the man. It's about the nature of the revelation because when God brings the gospel, he's bringing it to fallen men. He knows the depraved nature of a fallen man, thus he knows what the the nature of the gospel must be in order for that fallen man to have the ability to respond to that appeal. And that's why I think Calvinists have to turn the gospel into just another commandment because if it's an appeal, if it's truly seen as an appeal to be reconciled from the fall, their whole systematic falls apart on that alone. And that's exactly what Second Corinthians chapter 5 describes it as, that we are ambassadors for Christ. He's making his appeal through us to be reconciled to God. I don't see how Calvinism survives under that truth.
0: Okay, he's basically saying that the gospel is an appeal not a command. And I'm not sure how he's understanding, you know, a distinction between law and gospel, because Jesus himself in Mark chapter one says, repent and believe the gospel. And if I remember correctly, those are in probably aorist imperatives, meaning those are commands. Uh, Paul says, you know, God has commanded us to um or by raising Jesus from the dead, commands all people everywhere to repent. So in a sense the gospel is is a command in the sense that God has made the announcement of the death, burial, and resurrection of, of Jesus, and there's a command to repent and believe. There's a command to submit to him as Lord. But at the same token, it's also an appeal. It is an appeal. He's exactly right. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul makes this analogy that we're like ambassadors making our appeal, be reconciled to God. And so I think it's totally appropriate to look at the different ways that the gospel is presented even in the Bible itself. You know, sometimes you have it as an appeal. Sometimes you have it as a persuasion. Paul, you know, went to Thessalonica and he met in the synagogue and he reasoned sometimes it's a bold charismatic uh, the word charisma uh, caruso comes from the greek word to herald to proclaim uh, like john the baptist where you or peter when he stands up at pentecost where you're urging and you're commanding and and sometimes it's with tears and earnestness i don't think we can pigeonhole how we present the gospel because i think even the bible itself we see different manners in which it's presented sometimes with tears as a pleading as an appeal sometimes as a command Sometimes as a persuasive argument, uh, sometimes as a herald, uh, giving information like a town crier. I think there's a lot of different ways the Bible's presented, not just solely as a, an appeal. And I do believe that, that to repent and believe is a command. Now, I don't know if that's um, in the sense uh, law in the, in the way that we would think about the distinction between law and gospel, but anytime that you have an imperative, especially in the imperative tense in the Greek language, it is a command to be obeyed or to be responded to. And so um, I guess the big difference we would have, and this is a big difference in Calvinism and, and even Arminianism or traditional Southern Baptists. here's the big rub. Here's the argument, okay? We as Calvinists believe that humans are incapable of responding because we are totally depraved and no one can do that. We, we lack the capacity. That's our viewpoint. Okay, a traditionalist will come along or an Arminian and may say, Now, wait a minute. If we are totally unable to respond, then why in the world does God give us commands in the Bible? Does not God giving commands assume that we have the capacity to respond? And that's a valid argument. It's a good argument. The argument is, well, then why are there commands if we can't keep them? And so the Calvinistic argument says those commands are there. Because it's the revealed will of God. And yes, God has given those commands knowing full well that humans are incapable of keeping those commands. And so to repent and believe is a command. But a Calvinist would say, we lack the ability to repent and believe. We cannot follow that command. We cannot do that in and of ourselves. We lack the capacity. Therefore, we need the intervention of the Holy Spirit to come and do the work of regeneration, the effectual call. He comes in. He liberates our will. He liberates us. He grants us the gifts of repentance and faith. And He gives us what in our depraved state we lack. And when the gospel outwardly, call goes out. Inwardly, the call goes to the elect, and the Holy Spirit affects that ability to follow the command, to repent and believe. That's that's the distinction there. Let's continue to hear what he has to say.
1: Because if you recognize that God sent the gospel as an appeal for fallen man, then it's an Possible to support the concept and the idea that the man is fallen and because he's fallen he's incapable of responding to the very word God sent to call him to be reconciled from that fallen condition I just don't see any support for that Um, and where it gets into the Arminian, and I'm kind of jumping back and forth and I apologize for that Um, that's why sometimes the, the written word is better because you can stay focused on one particular point under a particular title and when you get to talking, you get to rambling. So I, I, forgive me for that. But the point that I want to make with regard to the Armenian controversy on this subject and some, some of the, the accusations of semi-Pelagianism and all those kinds of things that come with that, I think that's a, a very Western way of looking at this text. I think it's a, a reading of a systematic and a way of, of systematizing and thinking over the course of, of you know theological history. And a lot of times the, the doctorates and the PhDs, from this study, they've read so much and they have delved so much into this study, especially from the Western perspective, they have those lenses on, they can't see it any other way. And so when a somebody that comes from a different worldview, a different perspective than they are that it's hard for them to even grasp where they're coming from because they're not using the same vernacular that the, the other person is. They're not using the same jargon, theological jargon, and coming with the same presuppositions as the other person is. So there's some people that come from the more Armenian scholarly Armenian perspective that have some presuppositions that Baptists, traditional Babblists just never have adopted we don't we don't hold to and and i would say you know obviously argue we don't hold to it because scripture didn't teach it um now that could obviously be debated but i think what has to be um what's incumbent upon those who want to hold to a concept of total inability is you've got to establish from scripture why the fallen man is unable to willingly respond to god and his truth Brought to us by the Holy Spirit in His power. Uh, well, ha, prove that from Scripture. Prove from Scripture that the, the will of man has become, or the nature of man has become, um, so repulsed to the things of God that the Holy Spirit has to do something preveniently before to make them desirous, or at least halfway desirous, in order to make them free to be able to respond. To the gospel again, it's a presupposition that's never been proven. I don't think in the text; it's just assumed, and and I don't think it's there. You you have to presume that the gospel's roadkill to the natural man.
0: Okay, so there's the challenge. There's his there's his ultimate statement here at the end of his podcast. Um, He says, "Prove it. Prove from the Bible that it teaches total inability." And that's what I'm going to attempt to do in the rest of this podcast, is to prove from the scriptures that that's what the Bible teaches. Now, I want to just kind of give a little bit of of church history here, because even among the traditional Southern Baptists, there seems to be even some differences on their viewpoints. Um, Some of the Traditional Southern Baptists like Leighton Flowers will say they hold to what's called the corporate view of election. Others like Steve Lemke. Uh, Steve Lemke is the professor of systematic theology at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. He's a, he's a big-time leader in the traditionalist movement. A lot of his statements in writing are very, very Arminian. And then the traditionalist Southern Baptists say, no, we're not Arminian. But yet when you read Steve Limke, you're like, man, this guy sounds like an Arminian. Let me read to you from, this is from the book, um, A Biblical Theological Critique of Five-Point Calvinism, Whosoever Will, edited by David Allen. And Steve Lemke, Reflections from the John 3.16 Conference. This is actually on page 137 in Steve Lemke's chapter on the critique of irresistible grace. And here's what he says. The Holy Spirit convicts and convinces the sinner through enabling or prevenient grace, leading and enabling the person to respond in faith, resulting in regeneration, justification, and and salvation. And he has a footnote says I am using the term enabling grace to be synonymous with prevenient grace. The issue is not whether unaided humans would naturally seek God without his grace. The issue is whether the Holy Spirit regenerates persons before they respond to faith in God. In both approaches it is the Holy Spirit who through the gospel preaching and other means convicts and convinces sinners to repent of their sins and to trust Christ. So again, he's not denying the role of the Holy Spirit. He just says that the Holy Spirit does a work of prevenient grace to convict and convince a sinner, enabling a person to respond, leading and enabling that person to respond. Now, that's very confusing because Leighton Flowers has just said that we have the capacity to respond and the Holy Spirit doesn't need to do the second work of prevenient grace to give anybody the ability to respond. And here you have Steve Lemke saying that the Holy Spirit convicts and convinces the sinner through enabling grace, leading and enabling the person to respond. The Holy Spirit leads them and enables them to respond. And the question then becomes, okay, why does the Holy Spirit have to enable a person to respond? If the Holy Spirit has to do a prevenient work of grace to enable them to respond, why could not they respond without the Holy Spirit? I'm getting a confusing viewpoint from some of the traditional Southern Baptists. Now, ultimately he argues that it results in regeneration, which both traditional Southern Baptists and Arminians do believe that regeneration comes after faith. But I'm confused by Steve Limke's statement because it sounds to me like he does not believe that you have the ability to respond, that the Holy Spirit must enable that. And if the Holy Spirit must enable that, then what, why does he have to enable that? What is it about a sinner that requires the Holy Spirit to enable them? Because enable means that they are not able. <laughs> they are not able to respond. And so if they're not able to respond, the Holy Spirit must make them able to respond. Now, as Calvinists, we'd say, yeah, we agree with that. We are not able to respond. And thus the Holy Spirit has to enable us to respond. And he brings about regeneration only in his elect. Again, Steve Lemke would say this, um, as far as the foreknowledge view when it comes to election, uh, my position follows the order of Romans 8, 28 through 30. God foreknows those who will respond in faith, and on the basis of that foreknowledge, he predestines, calls, justifies, and glorifies them. That's the traditional Arminian view of election. It's the foreknowledge view. But yet, many of the traditional Southern Baptists argue for what's called the corporate view of election. And so I want to just give a little bit of church history here to kind of show you how some of these things have happened in the change in the um, the Southern Baptist Convention. It's very interesting because back in 1845 is when the Southern Baptist Convention basically started. And during the early days of the Southern Baptist Convention, it was definitely of Calvinistic five-point Calvinism held sway. Um, the writing theologians were Patrick Hughes Mell, John Dagg, and especially James Boyce. Uh, James Boyce is really the leading theologian who, who really wrote the abstract of principles, which Southern Seminary and Southeastern Seminary, their professors, have to sign off on that. And so from the very beginning of the Southern Baptist Convention. It was Calvinistic. And so there's this big argument about, well, who's, who's more traditionalist? The traditionalist, um, and so, you know, some, some of the, the founders guys will say, you know, the, the most traditional Southern Baptist view is the five-point Calvinist view because that's what we were founded upon. And the traditionalist will say, no, that's not been the predominant view in the Southern Baptist Convention for the past, you know, 50, 60, 70 years. And they're right on that. There was a major turning point in the 1920s, 1930s, with the president of Southern Seminary, E.Y. Mullins. Um, E.Y. E. Mullins basically um, shifted a lot of the, the strong Calvinistic tendencies of the Southern Baptist Convention to a more, what would be called modified Calvinism, a modified Calvinism. And it wasn't really until Herschel Hobbes came along that he really, I think, if there's one person that really shaped, has shaped the theology of the traditional Southern Baptist movement, it's Herschel Hobbes. Now you may ask, well, who's, who's Herschel Hobbes? Well, he's kind of the the, the grandfather of Southern Baptists. Um, he was the chairman of the 1963 Baptist Faith and Message. Um, he had the Baptist Hour radio program. Prolific writer, wrote a lot of books, wrote for a lot of Sunnystool curriculum. Basically in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, And even all the way up to his death in 1995, Herschel Hobbes was probably the leading popular theologian among Southern Baptists. And Herschel Hobbes really was the one, I think, that I don't know if he established it or if he came up with it, but he sure definitely popularized what's called the corporate view of election. He really led... The Southern Baptist Convention away from Calvinism to more of an Arminian or what the traditionalist Baptist would say is the traditional Baptist position. And so there, there's some interesting things about um, Herschel Hobbes. There's an interesting book that I would recommend. Um, it's called Southern Baptist Thought Since 1845 Has Our Theology Changed? And this book goes through a lot of major doctrines and how it's changed since the inception. And one, chapter 2 is on predestination. And, and, and it's very interesting to see how Herschel Hobbes changed the trajectory of Calvinism to a more Arminian or what would now be considered traditionalist view. Now, let me just give you some quotes from Herschel Hobbes and some of his famous books. Um, he's got a lot of books you know, he's written the Baptist Faith and Message Handbook uh, Fundamentals of the Faith um, a lot of his view on election and predestination comes from his Ephesians commentary New Men in Christ um, but here's what he says um, God knows who will be saved and who will be lost but his foreknowledge does not mean that he has arbitrarily named some for heaven and others for hell so he holds to that foreknowledge view God has limited himself, however, by choosing not to assert his sovereignty in a way that would violate human free will. To do otherwise would be inconsistent with his nature, character, and purpose. So God limits his his sovereignty in that he does not actually choose. As powerful as God may be, his divine sovereignty can never cancel human freedom. If it ever does occur, then man loses his personality and is incapable of fellowship with God. An all-powerful, sovereign God has in matters of the Spirit voluntarily limited Himself to the response of the free will of man. Now, this corporate view of election that Herschel Hobbes talks about is more, more of what I would call a plan of salvation. It's, he takes Ephesians where it talks about how we were chosen in Christ, and basically the argument goes like this. God, before the foundation of the world, had in mind the church, Christians, Christians this large number of people who were going to be in Christ. And so at a point in time when you trust Jesus for salvation, you get included in Christ, and thus you become one of the elect. So it's not the foreknowledge view where God looks down the corridors of time and determines, you know, based upon what he sees. That the Arminian view says when God looks down through the corridors of time, he sees who's going to choose him, and based upon what God sees, God elects or passes over based upon what he sees. That's not the corporate view of election. The Calvinist view says it's unconditional election. God chooses based upon the sovereignty of his own free pleasure, and there's nothing in the person that would require God to do that, and God did. God chose certain individuals, actual people, to be saved before the foundation of the world. Herschel Hobbes' view and the corporate view says God chose a plan. God chose the people in general, the elect in general, the church in general, had this plan in mind, and it was in Christ, because Christ is the one whom God had known before the foundation of the world. And when you use your free will in time to accept Jesus as Savior, then you get included in what God's plan was to be part of the elect. Now, I think I'm accurately representing His viewpoint. But it's interesting because I think the traditionalist Southern Baptist view point today, I really think they can trace their roots back to Herschel Hobbes and his theology. Uh, I think he's got his fingerprints all over their theology. Now, one of the things that I'm going to do here in just a few moments is I'm going to, to try to prove from the scriptures that the Bible does teach total inability. But one thing I want to do is I want to go back to the church fathers because oftentimes you will hear traditional Southern Baptists or others say, man, these views about you know, total inability or, or you know these views weren't around until Calvin and Luther and the, and the, the Protestant Reformation and you know, Jonathan Edwards. Um, the early church fathers didn't, obviously didn't believe this. Well, I want to give you some quotes from the early church fathers. And I want you to be the determiner of whether you think I'm misinterpreting them. I'm just going to read them at face value. Um, I'm not going to give a lot of comments on them because I, I think that sometimes if you comment on one or two statements out of context, you can, you can lose really the whole meaning of what they're trying to say. But I'm just going to throw them out there. Um, this, is the th- this is from Ignatius in AD 110. He said, Unbelievers cannot... Do the things that are spiritual, nor can unbelievers do the things of belief. Unbelievers cannot do the things of belief. It sounds like total inability. All right, let's listen to Justin Martyr in AD 150. He wrote this Mankind by Adam fell under death and the deception of the serpent. We are born sinners. No good thing dwells in us, for neither by nature, nor by human understanding is it possible for men to acquire the knowledge of things so great and so divine, but by the energy of the Holy Spirit. Of ourselves, it is impossible to enter the kingdom of God. He has convicted us of the impossibility of our nature to obtain life. Free will has destroyed us. We who were free are become slaves. And for our sin, our soul, being pressed down by our sins, we cannot move upward towards God. We are like birds who have wings but are unable to fly. Strong statement on inability. Origin. now there's some things about Origin that you've got to be careful about. I don't know if he's the greatest source, but Origen said this, Our free will or human nature is not sufficient to seek God in any manner. Eusebius was the famous church historian, A.D. 330, he said, The liberty of our will in choosing things that are good is destroyed. Our will is destroyed. Jerome, in A.D. 390, he wrote the Latin Vulgate, said this, This is the chief righteousness of man to reckon that whatsoever power he can have is not his own, but the Lord who gives it. See how great is the help of God and how frail the condition of man that we cannot by any means fulfill this, that we repent unless the Lord first converts us. When Jesus says, no man can come to me, he breaks the proud liberty of free will, for man can desire nothing and in vain he endeavors. Where is the proud boasting of free will? We pray in vain if it is in our own will. Why should men pray for that from the Lord which they have in the power of their own free will? Some interesting statements by the early church fathers on total inability. Now, the question then becomes okay, what saith the word? What does the Bible say about this? Um, I'm going to attempt to interact with the challenge where Leighton Flowers said, prove it from scriptures that we lack the ability to come. John 6 44 is a classic text that I go to often because I think Jesus is very clear in that text about human inability. Listen to the words of Jesus in John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, in our English, let's just ask a question before we get to the Greek here. No one can come. Is Jesus speaking of permission Or is he speaking of ability? No one has permission to come to me. Or is he saying no one has the ability? No one can come. Now, when Jesus talks about coming to him, he's talking about having faith in him. All throughout John 6, he's talking about faith, trust, believing in him. So Jesus says, no one can come to me. Now, if you go back to the original language, in the Greek, it means no one has the ability We lack the capacity to come. So Jesus flat out says, We cannot come to him. And then there's an unless, unless the Father who sent me draws him. So God must do a prevenient work. I don't necessarily like the word prevenient grace, but God must do a prior work if anybody's going to come. Because in and of themselves, Jesus says, they can't come. What must the Father do to bring a sinner to Jesus? The Father must draw him. The Father must draw him. Now, that's just another word for convicting that leads to regeneration. And we also know that Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. So here's the the, the logic that Jesus gives. You can't come to Jesus. Why? Because you lack the capacity as because you're enslaved to sin. You are totally dead in sin. You are depraved. You can't do it. Okay? So something has to happen to you. The Father must draw you. Okay? And so the Father, when the Father draws you, what's going to happen? When the Father draws you, are you going to come or are you going to resist that drawing? Now, some people would say, well, you can resist that drawing. It's resistible grace. The Father can draw. The Father can woo. The Holy Spirit can convince. The Holy Spirit can convict. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it's up to you. But what does Jesus say in John 6? All that the Father gives me will come to me. And those who come to me, I will in no way cast out. So if you can't come and then you do come, why did you come to Jesus? It's because the Father drew you. And when the Father draws, what's going to happen? All that the Father gives me will come. You will come. If the Father draws you, you will come. And not only will you come, but the rest of the verse says, I will raise him up on the last day. Is there a possibility that the Father draws, you don't come, but then you're still raised up on the last day? No, this is talking about a full salvation from first to last where Jesus clearly says, humans lack the capacity go back and look at the greek humans lack the ability they they lack the inherent ability to come to believe why well the rest of the scripture teaches us, we'll get to some other verses here we are enslaved to sin we are totally dead we are depraved we're lost we have hearts of stone we can't come now come to me sounds like respond The traditionalist view says we have the ability to respond. God has given us the ability to respond to to the gospel call. But Jesus just here says nobody can respond. Now, you may argue whether come and respond mean the same thing, but I think in the context of John's gospel, come to Christ means believe, means trust, means put your faith in. I think that's what a traditional Arminian would say, I mean, a traditionalist Southern Baptist or Arminian would say it's the same thing, to, to respond to the call. When Jesus calls, when the Holy Spirit convicts, when the Holy Spirit works, you have the ability to come. Now, it's very interesting because I go, I go back to that um, questioning, that, that, that questioning quote by Steve Lemke where it says, the Holy Spirit convicts and convinces the sinner through enabling or prevenient grace, leading and enabling the person to respond in faith leading and enabling the person to respond in faith. Again, I ask, why does the Holy Spirit need to lead and enable if the person's already able to do that? And then isn't that an extra work of grace on top of, the, uh, of just the bare preaching of the gospel? So Jesus himself says, no one can come to me. It's not talking about permission. It's talking about ability. Unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. So here's the logic of John 6. The Father has given a people to Jesus. When were those people given? Before the foundation of the world. Can those people come? No, they can't. Then why do they come to Jesus? They come because the Father draws them. And when the Father draws them, they will most definitely come. And what will happen? Jesus will never cast them out and they will be raised up on the last day. He will lose none that the Father has given him. And he repeats this in John 17 as well. Now, most traditional Southern Baptists will concede to total depravity. But the issue that we're talking about in this podcast in response to the traditional Baptist view that show me a verse or prove to me a verse that says that we are totally unable. Well, I hope John 6:44 in and of itself is enough to convince us that we are unable to do that. But let me just go and look at some other things because... Um, it talks about, you know, from birth, I think is what Leighton Flowers said. Uh, show me a passage where it says you're incapacitated from birth. Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Let's look at some other passages of Scripture here. We know that Jeremiah 13.23 is a very interesting passage of Scripture. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard change his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. Now, now what's Jeremiah saying here? An Ethiopian back in that day is like today um, had dark skin. Can an Ethiopian just wake up one day and say, I don't want to have this pigmentation anymore. I want to change the color of my skin. And the answer is no, obviously. Why? Why can't he change the color of his skin? Because he's born that way. He inherited it from his parents. It's part of his nature. It's something that he can't get rid of. It's part and parcel of who he is. Same thing with the leopard. Can a leopard change his spots? Can a leopard wake up one day and say, I really don't want to have spots. I want to have stripes. I want to be like a tiger. I don't want to be like a leopard with spots. No, same reason. A leopard can't do that because it's in his nature to have spots. He inherited it from his parents' Now, you may look and say, okay, well, that's an interesting story about an African, an interesting story about a leopard. What does this have to do with anything? Well, notice the rest of the statement that Jeremiah makes. Then also you can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. What's his his argument? What's his point? You can't stop doing evil in the same way that the Ethiopian can't change his skin, in the same way that the leopard can't change his spots because it's in your nature. You inherited it from your parents. You are incapacitated from birth to be able to make any change to do good. Ephesians 2, 1-3, You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of Wrath. Now that gives us a definition of being spiritually dead. Now there may be some debates among traditional Southern Baptists. I've gone to some blogs where they argue that dead does not really mean dead. It, it, there, there's some differences there. And they'll, they'll say things like, you know, dead the way that the prodigal son was dead, but not dead the way that Lazarus in the tomb was dead. And I, I don't necessarily want to get into a, to a hermeneutical argument on, on the interpretation of those things. But what I do know is that the next passage says... But God, being rich in mercy, with great love with which he loved us, made us alive in Christ by grace you've been saved. Okay, so if you have the ability to respond, then why do you need to be made alive? Why do you need to be made alive? Wouldn't you just, when you hear the gospel call come to you, wouldn't you just have the innate ability to believe it? And then once you believed it, then... By believing, you're regenerated. It's the other way around in Ephesians. God's the one that made you alive. It's by grace you've been saved. You're made alive, and then you believe. You're regenerated first, and then you believe. One of the verses that um, we need to look at is Romans 8, 7 through 9. And I know that some traditional Southern Baptists, I think maybe even Leighton Flowers has dealt with this. I'm not sure. Um, I'd have to go back and look at his his podcast or look at his blog. Uh, Romans 8, 7, and 9. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, who's he talking about here? Who are those people who are in the flesh? Who are those whose minds are set on the flesh? Who are these people? They're not Christians who are living carnally. They're not Christians who are, are, are struggling with sin. And how do I know that? Well, the very next verse, Paul explains it. He's writing to the Roman Christians in the book of, book of Romans, and here's what he says in verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells with you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. He's saying, listen, I'm not talking about you. You're Christians. The moment that you trusted Christ for salvation, the Holy Spirit took up residence in you. He dwells in you. You have the Holy Spirit. You belong to Christ. You're a Christian. You're not in the flesh. That's not who I'm talking about. I'm not talking about you. You've been regenerated. You've been in, dwelt with the Holy Spirit. You've been sealed. There's another category of people, those in the flesh. And he's not talking about Christians who are struggling with sin. He's talking about lost people. Those who are in the flesh are lost people. The mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God, it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. They cannot submit to God's law. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. To me, that sounds like ability or lack thereof. A lost person, because their mind is hostile to God, they not just don't want to submit to God's law. They don't just don't want to please God. They cannot. They cannot. The text there does not say, you know, it doesn't, they don't want to, submit to God's law. They don't have the desire to submit to God's law. They don't really have the inclination. It says they cannot do that. Well, why can't they do it? Why can't they please God? Why can't they respond? Now, now here's the argument, and I'm sure this, was, this would maybe be how Leighton Flowers or others would respond. They would may say, now, wait a minute. This text does not deal with responding to the gospel. This is talking about obeying God's law, that a lost person just in and of themselves can't obey God's law. And to an extent, I would agree with him. Yes, obviously a lost person cannot obey God's law because they don't have the Holy Spirit in them, giving them the desire, or the ability to obey God's law. But verse eight says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, what does it mean to please God? Think of all the different ways you can please God. You please God by obeying Him. You please God by worshiping Him. You please God by listening to Him. What's the greatest thing that pleases God? Trust in His Son, Jesus Christ. And Paul says, if you're in the flesh, if you're lost, if you are hostile against God, because why are you hostile against God? You're hostile because you're an enemy of God. You're under His wrath. Your mind is depraved. You don't want to submit to Him. And not only do you not want to, but you cannot. You cannot because you're in the flesh. You're lost. When, when the gospel is pre- presented to you and there's the command to repent and, ple- and to believe in Jesus, which ultimately pleases the Father, I think Paul would say, listen, when the gospel comes to a lost person, that gospel comes as a command. Repent and believe in Jesus. And he would say, you can't do that. You can't respond. You can't repent. You can't believe. You can't do what's pleasing to God. You cannot do it because you're in the flesh and you're hostile. You need to have the power of regeneration. You need to be made spiritually alive. I know in Colossians, um, it's interesting, Colossians 2 13, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Another place in Colossians, it talks about having, um, being alienated and hostile in mind against God. And so all these definitions of, of total depravity, that we're lost, that we're depraved, that we're dead, that we're hostile, that we have hearts of stone, that doesn't just speak of total depravity. It doesn't just speak of, of our nature having an inclination toward sin. It also takes it one step further and says because of that, our will has been incapacitated. We lack the ability to respond. doesn't mean we don't understand the facts. When the gospel's presented to us, it doesn't mean we don't understand the facts of the gospel. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, it says, the natural person, again, Paul uses this term, the natural person, the lost person, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. He's not able to understand. Okay, why is he not able to understand? Because he's a natural person. He is in the flesh. Now, not able to understand, does that mean that when I stand up on Sunday morning and I present the gospel, that there's not an intelligent person that's an adult out there that that says, okay, I'm tracking with Pastor Sean, I, I hear his argumentation, I see the facts, I look at the historical reality of who Jesus is, I know the words that he's using, he's not using any confusing words, I understand the concepts, all of that stuff, based upon the information that Pastor Sean has given me on a Sunday morning, I understand. Sure, we'd say he understands. He understands the words I'm using. He understands the flow of my argumentation. He understands the concepts. He may even understand the theology. He may even understand who Jesus is. But does he accept the things of the Spirit of God, the things related to salvation, the things related to actually trusting in Christ and seeing Him as beautiful and and repenting and believing? Does he understand those things? And Paul would say, no, he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Well, how can you spiritually discern something if you don't have the Spirit of God? And what does the Spirit of God have to do? The Spirit of God has to come and do a prior work of regenerating you and opening your mind, of making you alive, of taking out your heart of stone, and putting in a heart of flesh, opening the blinders off your eyes to show you, to convict you, and then ultimately to regenerate you so that <clears throat> you move from being a natural person to being supernaturally regenerated by the Holy Spirit, and then you're able to understand. And then once you're able to understand the spiritual aspect of it, guess what God does? He regenerates you and gives you the gifts of repentance and faith so that you can come, tying all the way back to what Jesus said. No one can come. Well, let's just tie everything back to what Jesus said. Why can't we come? No one can come to me. And you may say, well, why can't we come? unless the father does this work why does this father has to do the, why does the father has to do have to do this work of drawing us why can't we come jeremiah 17:9 the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick who can understand it <clears throat> excuse me jesus says in john 8:34 truly truly I say to you everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin why can't we come we're slaves to sin Why can't we come because we're a natural person in the flesh and we don't understand the things of God? Why can't we come because we have hostile minds that are set against God? Why can't we come because we cannot please God? Why can't we come because we're dead in our trespasses and sins? Why can't we come because like the Ethiopian, we can't change our skin, and like the leper, we can't change our spots? Why can't we come because we're children of wrath? Why can't we come because no one seeks God? No, not one. We're not righteous. We don't understand. We've turned aside. Together, we become worthless. No one does good. No, not even one. Why can't we come? Well, because... Ecclesiastes nine three says, "There's an evil that's done under the sun that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. Why can't we come? Because we were brought forth in iniquity and in sin did our mother conceive us. Why can't we come? Because, according to Colossians two thirteen, we were dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of our hearts. Why can't we come? Because we're dead." We're enslaved. We can't please God. We don't seek God. And Jesus flat out says, no one can come to me unless the Father does the work of drawing. And who does the Father draw? The Father draws only those whom he has given to Jesus before the foundation of the world. Because Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come. Not may come, might come, use their free will to reject, hear the Spirit's prompting, but then resist. No, all that the Father gives me will come. How do we know who's been given to Jesus by the Father? They have faith in Jesus. They come. Why have they come? Well, they've been given to Jesus by the Father. Why do they come? Because the Father has drawn them. Why couldn't they come? Because no one's able to come because of sin. What happens to those that come? Jesus will lose none of them and they'll be raised up on the last day. Now, I know that I probably have gone in a lot of circles on this podcast, dealt in a lot of issues that are related to church history, to Southern Baptist life, interacted with latent flowers, did a little bit of scripture, and I hope it's been beneficial. And um, I want to be corrected if for some way I'm wrong or I'm understanding things or if I, um, as, as Leighton Flowers would say, have my Calvinistic lenses on too much that I'm not able to see things. And so um, if you have any questions about this podcast or you want to interact with me or you um, would like to, uh, to, to know a little bit more about these things, you can email me. Um, at sean at ebc-online.org. You can go to my website, seancole.net, to get more information. And so um, I really appreciate you listening. I know this was a little different type of podcast, but I just felt like um, I was driving to Denver the other day um, to meet a friend, actually my mentor, my, my pastor mentor that mentored me when I was a youth pastor. We meet occasionally for lunch in Denver, and as I was driving on that hour-and-a-half drive to Denver, I was listening to the podcast, and I just felt like, you know, I really appreciate listening to Leighton Flowers. I appreciate his ministry. I think he's doing a, a great job, but I just want to kind of get my thoughts out there and respond and take on his challenge, and I, I don't want to do it in a gentle way, and I hope I in no way have I ever attacked the traditional Southern Baptists, personally, um, I, I disagree wholeheartedly with a lot of their their conclusions and, and presuppositions. But I, again, I want you to understand these are secondary issues. Um, Calvinism is not the gospel. It's not a dogma, a hill on which we must die. Um, it's secondary. And at the end of the day, when we get to heaven, um, I'm going to be thankful for that traditionalist Sunday school teacher who told me the gospel when I got saved back in 1979 and those traditionalist pastors that I listened to growing up that taught me the gospel and my traditionalist father who has mentored me and the traditionalist college minister who's mentored me and all the great people in my life who've mentored me, who've loved me, who've discipled me that don't have the same theology of me, but they love Jesus, they love the Bible, they love the gospel and I'm so thankful for their input and their encouragement in my life and I would not be where I am today without those. So a shout out to my traditionalist Southern Baptist brothers and sisters. Um, I, I do love you. I appreciate you I hope there's room enough for both of us in this other Baptist convention. Um, I don't want there to be contention. I don't want there to be division. I don't want us to divide over things like this when we've got a world that's lost and going to hell, and especially in light of the whole Supreme Court ruling on gay marriage. These issues are going to pale in comparison to how we're going to have to link arms to stand in the face of culture that's going to be coming at us with guns barreled, uh, trying to get us to redefine marriage and redefine the exclusivity of Christ. And so we've got bigger fish to fry, and we've got greater things to do for the kingdom of God. And so it's such a time as this that we really need to be linking arms with Southern Baptists and all evangelicals, regardless of what name happens to be on the outside of your church or denomination. We need to stand strong during these days together. And let's major on the majors and minor on the minors and really go forward in the power of the Holy Spirit, sharing the gospel with the lost and dying world. Thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. I hope you have a great day and until next time, God bless you and God keep you and make His face to shine upon you.